Welcome to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. Ross Brannan is a financial advisor who knows it's not just about your teeth. He helps dental practice owners protect and maximize today's cash flow to plan for tomorrow's cash needs. Find him at rossbrannan.com. On the show, he brings together experts to help dental professionals looking to make smart money decisions to grow their income, turn their retirement goals into reality, and improve their lives. And now, here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Kim Butler. Kim is a thought leader in the financial services industry. She is the founder of the Prosperity Economics Movement and Prosperity Thinkers, an organization dedicated to educating entrepreneurs, investors, and other wealth-minded people to live and think more prosperously. She also is an Investopedia Top 100 Influential Advisor, a coach in the Strategic Coach Program, and last but not least, an author of seven books. Today, she is a guest in our Financial Flossing podcast. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ross. Always a joy to talk with you and always fun to write books and do podcasts. Yes, I tell you, uh, for listeners, our, this is going to be a little bit longer than usual podcast because as I told Kim before, I'm one of her biggest fans. I have a million questions to ask her. And I'll tell you right now, I have bought over 125 of one of her books. It is so amazing. I, I mean, you know, I wish she made more than a dollar on every book, but, 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 uh, but, uh, so, and we'll get into that. So kind of tell everyone your background, Kim, kind of what's your story? Absolutely. Well, I think it has a fun beginning because in fourth grade, my parents got me a milk cow like a dairy cow that I milked <laughs> and we lived on a farm obviously. And I sold the milk. And so I had way more money than all my friends, like from junior high, high school, I milked cows, sold milk throughout that entire time. And so I had to figure out the money game pretty quickly. And I also had to figure out the game of business. And so that led into a uh, fairly typical college career where I was an English major, hence the books, right? And then right out of college, I went into banking because during college, I realized the whole English thing. I looked at law for a while, wasn't a good match for me. And I got hired right away through a management training program of what is now Bank of America. And I loved my time at the bank. However, I wanted to help people more holistically and this was the late 80s. So banks basically had checking and savings accounts and loans. They didn't have the stuff that banks do today. So I left the bank and went into the financial services industry, spent about five years doing what I call typical financial planning, and then just realized that that wasn't fitting who I was as a person. I wanted a little bit more flexibility. I wanted something that rang more true to me than handing somebody a financial plan. And this is pre-internet, remember? So like mid-90s, I just decided that there had to be a better way out there, did a bunch of interviews, found out that all of my really good banking clients who I was still in touch with dealt with real estate and whole life insurance. And so it was an appropriate match in my mind and that they were way more economically based rather than financial planning oriented. And so I just shifted my practice to what I now call today prosperity economics. And frankly, don't think I've ever looked back. 
Let's talk about that for a second, because, you know, that 150 page report you would always give people, I'm sure they would read over it every night and it would sit on their coffee table. Right. That's that's I mean, that's what happens, because and, and for those of you listening, please note my sarcasm. I mean, it, it's it's kind of uh, it's it's kind of ridiculous that we do that in this industry. And, you know, you speak to something that I am very passionate about is, you know, <laughs> Our industry is is somewhat fragmented. You have kind of the investment only people. Then you have, then you have some uh, one side is kind of insurance only. Then you have kind of what I call in the middle, like kind of the macroeconomic planning, where you're looking at everything all together, even something as mundane as auto insurance. And so, kind of speak to that a little bit about the power in actual doing true financial planning, macroeconomic planning. Well, I think there's two aspects to it. So. Your term macroeconomics is something that is so valuable, and yet it's never brought down to people's personal finances. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I hated macro and micro econ in school. Aggregate supply, aggregate Ugh. demand, the little chart. It was miserable. Absolutely. And, and yet it is so important that as individuals, we look at our finances holistically, which is all macroeconomic means, because you cannot make a decision about your car insurance without taking a look at everything else going on in your lives. You cannot make a decision about any one particular thing in a vacuum. And so financial planning, which has only been around since the 1970s, tries to put all these things together and create what is mathematically correct. So a financial plan is mathematically correct. The numbers are right. The math is right. But it has absolutely nothing to do with our lives because our lives don't work mathematically. We do not have the ability to control money or our lives in any average way, even in any Monte Carlo way, you know, these are terms that we apply to financial plans. So again, the math is correct, but it has complete disconnect to our lives. And so it causes a false sense of peace of mind. We look at that coffee table book, that document with the cool graphs, and we think it's real and it's not. And I think that's why there's such a disconnect between the two. Well, I like to say if financial planning worked, we wouldn't have the retirement crisis. And so, so it's obviously, it obviously doesn't work, but to your point, money is at math. And, and, and so, you know, obviously we're an average returns aren't the same as actual returns. Oh, you're going to get X percent return, but that doesn't factor in emotions of selling and buying and things like that. And so it's really fascinating. I was speaking at a dental school uh, two weeks ago, and I was making the point that contributing to a retirement account at 24, 25, 26 years old it's like the sacred cow. I'm like, what's more important? A few thousand dollars that you can't touch for 35 years or having a liquid nest egg that gives you flexibility. Yep. And this and this kid was trying to politely debate me on it. And I was like, well, first things first, everyone's situation is different. It's not the same advice for everybody, but turns out the kid had no student loans. So he comes from a pretty well-off family. And so maybe it makes sense for him. But how many people are 22, 23, they go get a job, like you got auto-enrolled in the 401k. And they have nothing in liquid savings. It makes 
no sense. My son went through the same thing. His company has a hundred percent match. All of his friends, all of the employers, all of the older people at his company got to do the 401k, got to do the 401k. Why? It made no sense. He wanted to get in real estate. He had no savings. Savings must happen first. Real estate should be second. Besides that, this concept of retirement must be retired. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, and of course, you're auto-enrolled. Not only are you auto-enrolled, but you're auto-enrolled in a tax-deferred account when you're making the least amount of money possible. So you are reverse tax planning in the lowest tax rates we are going to see in our lifetime. So (laughs) uh, it's insane. So, you know, you brought up a, a subject that you and I feel very strongly about. And it's, you know, the whole concept of retirement, as you know, it's in the Bill of Rights. It's in the Constitution that you have to retire at 65. It's your right to do so. Wait, it's not. That's right. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, but it, there is this, and this is going to kind of rub people the wrong way. There is this attitude of entitlement. Um, and like I talked to a physician, he just graduated residency. And he started talking about retirement. And I looked at him to his face. I said, you haven't even started your job and you're already talking about quitting. Yikes. And so talk a little bit about the history of retirement, because I know you I know you know the whole con- the history of the concept. So talk about that for yes. a minute. Yes. So the most important thing to acknowledge, kind of like when orange became the new black, right? Like everybody wore black dresses. Now we're going to wear orange dresses. Well, 87 is the new 65. So here's the math. And this comes from my husband, Todd Langford, who is, as you know, the truth concepts creator. And he's the one. By the way, quick commercial, most amazing software, financial software. I mean, it's amazing. If you're a consumer, you can buy it and use it. Uh, And if you're an advisor, you should buy it and use it. It's fantastic. Sorry, sorry anyway, not go on. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I will share that with him. And I think it's super cool that consumers can buy it. Let's just piggyback on that real quick because there's so much financial software out there that you have to have a special license for as a financial advisor to use. And so it builds a wall between you, the advisor, and your client. So in this case, that wall is not there. And though no client probably would ever buy it, I mean, I've had a few. The fact that they can is so valuable to them as they're watching or listening or learning from you or any advisor who's using it. So anyway, Todd did the math, and this is the math. Back in the 1930s, the age 65 was declared as retirement when life expectancy was 67. Now, moving all those numbers forward, because life expectancy is now depending on which column you're using of which government table you're looking at, call it late seventies for people that qualify for life insurance. We're probably talking late eighties. If you're a Dan Sullivan strategic coach disciple, you're probably talking 110 or 120. 87 is the new 65 because life expectancy is at least late nineties or possibly 110 or whatever. And our society is still stuck back in 1930s math with age 65. And it's the saddest thing to me in the world. In fact, a company that you and I know very well, I remember this about five years ago, they had an extremely qualified head of investments 
that they had to make an exception for, for one year so that the guy could work from 65 to 66. So here is this man at the pinnacle of his wisdom being ushered out or being, you know, as they fought it, delayed one year so that he could work till he was 66. And now he's going to go do what for 30 years? It's sad. We must retire the concept of retirement age-wise. But furthermore, we know that retirement is not good for us. It's not good mentally, physically, socially, psychologically, physiologically. I mean, how many other L-Y words can I come up with? And it's just something that I'm obviously very passionate about shifting the landscape of. I, I was on a group text with some high school buddies. This was a few months ago. And they're like, they started talking about retirement. And, and I'm almost 44 years old. And ah. I, I said to them, I have no interest whatsoever. And they looked at me or were texting me back like I was an alien. Yeah. And, you know, my dad had a kind of a forced retirement in his uh, mid 50s. He was very successful. He was a good saver. So, he's, I mean, he was a good. So he was able to do that. But uh, watching the cognitive decline on him the last 20 years. And the physical decline, I was like, no, there's no way. You know, mm-hmm. I may not do what I'm doing now till I'm 100 years old, right. but I'll transition to something else. And and most people don't realize you're going to live to your mid 90s. Yeah, I mean the yeah, people yeah. you the people that you and I work with, they're higher income and they're highly educated, and those people statistically live longer than anyone else. Right. And so the the challenge that you know the the, the government messed up on, you can like or not like the New Deal and FDR, but the big mistake they made was not putting what I call a kind of a cost of living adjustment, a life expectancy adjustment on that. Because it's, I mean, so many people, it's the only thing they're holding on to for, for quote, retirement. It's their, and you know, you're right. We've created this entitlement. Had they done that, the system probably wouldn't be broke, Uh, but it's just a real challenging situation. Can you speak to the political history of retirement? Not real well, frankly. I appreciate that you think that I could. I just know that it was put forth. And I also know that it didn't exist prior to the time that it was put forth in the United States. And I think it came, you know, there's the whole thing about Germany and all that. But um, to me, what's more important is to look back at some things that a lot of people turn to. An example is the Bible. It's never mentioned in there. To look back, even in the United States, people didn't ever talk about that in the 20s and 30s. In fact, um, there is a quote from the 1940s in a book called Pound Foolish that says, back to our earlier discussion, but it kind of ties in, a financial plan is a whole life insurance policy and a mortgage. Wow. You know, it didn't talk about retirement. There wasn't such a thing as a retirement plan. I believe it's the 1970s or so that the 401k even came on the scene. And, you know, we had pensions previously to that. And I don't remember when those were started, but this entire space is new. And it's so clear to even, as an example, the American Association of Retired Persons, if you look at their information, they have started to try to shift the discussion because you said it well, They didn't apply adjustments to age 65. And so looking back on that now, that was disastrous. And so we need to do everything in our power 
to help people. And frankly, most of my clients, probably because they've heard me talk about this for so long, but they will admit to me, you know, I kind of knew it wasn't going to work anyway. I mean, anybody that looks a, a little bit at the math, sure, there's some exceptions. Wealthy families, they could pull it off financially. But I really like what you said, and I feel bad about your situation with your dad. I've got a father who's in his mid, sorry, mid 80s, still working. He helps student teachers at the university in the town that I grew up in still. My husband's mother still goes to the hospital lab only three or four days a week, which is, I think, the new definition of retirement. Find work you love, do it part-time, and keep doing it. And to your point about the math, if you work to 75, there's less money you need than if you work to 65. Um, right. And to your, your point about the Bible, you know, it, if to look at the Bible, work was before the fall of man in Genesis. So people think work's a bad thing. Looking at it from a biblical perspective, if, that, if that's your thing, it's not. And so people have to, I think you got to realize you should like what you do. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, I think in America, for the most part, retirement's kind of a post-World War II phenomenon. But Dan, the reason I asked you about the history is because Dan Sullivan, a good friend of yours, has written a lot about it. And if you're interested, Dan Sullivan, founder of The Strategic Coach, has a lot of literature commentary on retirement you can go to go on his website and uh, find all about that so let's talk about prosperity economics and prosperity thinkers um i know they have got some core values to them kind of speak to those and, and kind of how you're trying to challenge conventional wisdom well thank you i enjoy that discussion immensely because the term prosperity is so available to us throughout our lives. It does not always have to be about money, and yet it can be about money. And since money may not be everything in our life, but it certainly affects everything in our life, it's very, very critical that these things are brought together. And we've learned, and this is now scientifically proved, how important our mindsets are for anything that we do. And believe me, this is something I'm still working on every single day. Um, I was doing my own podcast recently, talking with Spencer Shaw, my co-host, and we came up with a fun definition that's different than what most people think about other people's money. So OPM, right? Other people's money. Well, it's also other people's mistakes and it's other people's minds. OPM could stand for any of those three things. So if I can share some of my mind or my wisdom, if you will, and some of my mistakes, then I think that helps people move forward. And so Prosperity Thinkers is essentially my life insurance practice that exists, thankfully, really to Robert Kiyosaki and the internet, which happened to come into my life at about the same time. And Robert just helped us become nationwide in our work. And I've worked remotely ever since. And I'm super grateful for that. So Prosperity Thinkers is my uh, connection to the life insurance world, if you will. And it does what you do for your clients. So there's two clear roles there. Prosperity Economics is a larger organization that my husband, Todd Langford, and I founded. It is set up as a nonprofit and it is designed to provide financial education, and this may sound really weird, to clients, which is normal, 
and to advisors. So why does financial education need to be provided to advisors, whether they're life insurance agents or financial advisors, you know, whatever term you want to use there. And it's because even those that have been trained and may have licenses that enable them to call themselves an advisor or an agent or a financial planner, you know, I'm not getting into the legal aspect of it at all, just using that term. So often they do not truly understand some elementary aspects of interest rates, compounding of money, how loans work, both at a bank and at a life insurance company, and on and on and on and on and on. And so Prosperity Economics is out there to provide financial education. And I really value the fact that you brought up some of our values or our principles, if you will. So at Prosperity Thinkers, we have seven specific principles that we work with. At Prosperity Economics, we have 12 because we lengthened it a little bit and we're trying to keep our brand lanes clean, if you will. There is some overlap between the two lists of principles. And I would encourage anybody to go dig around. Prosperityeconomics.org is really the best place to get the 12 principles. And the coolest thing about principles is that they apply to any area of life. So they're written as financial principles, but you can apply them to your health. You can apply them to your relationships. You can apply them to your business because a good principle is designed to be impactful throughout your whole life. Just like we were talking earlier, you know, your macroeconomic perspective, your holistic perspective on your personal finances, you've got to do the same thing to your life. You can't compartmentalize to the, you know, I mean, you can to a certain degree, but for in all reality and terms of every single day, you can't compartmentalize your life. Your life has to be looked at holistically also. And so that's where those principles really come in. Yeah. It's amazing listening to Todd talk when you talk about advisors need training. Well, unfortunately, just because you're an advisor doesn't mean you know everything financially. Um, and, And that's, they may know more than the person sitting across from them, but there, there's a lot of areas where there's some needed education. So I think the the one example that I love to talk about the best when Todd explains car rebates, ah, zero uh, percent interest or car rebates. We won't get into it here, but <laughs> you can find it online, and you uh, always do zero percent on your car finances. Uh, you might find that uh, that video a little interesting, to say the least. Well said. Yes. So I've been listening to Todd train for about 25 years, I think, since 1994. And it is amazing to me. I still learn something every single time. It is the most valuable financial education out there. And I realize I'm completely biased because it is my husband, but he wasn't my husband when I started getting trained by him. And it is an absolute joy. And I'll tell you, Ross, how many clients we've had attend Truth Training, which how cool is that? That the information that we're sharing professionally is so able to be transparent, is so truthful, is so provable that we can have a client come to our three-day Truth Training and be totally fine with it. Yeah, that's that's really really interesting, and you know, unfortunately, it just there's just so much misinformation out there, and it's just it's you know certain 
it just seems to me that certain industries control the narrative more than others. And it's just, it's, it's a little frustrating. It's like, I, I'm not one of those kind of, you know, big, there's a big bad wolf in the corner trying to, you know, with puppet strings, but there's just so much misinformation out there. And I think one of the things that people need to realize is, is if, if you're in an industry and you're trying to market your product or service, you know, you're an iClient, your clients are my clients, they're in the top 1%, okay? Almost exclusively, not all of them, but, but a very high percentage of them are. Sure. The, the conventional advice that you see on TV, in print, or online is not geared to the 1% because nope. if it was, they'd go out of business. Right. They have to go, they have to go, they've got to go market it to the masses. And right. the challenge is you're around it, you see it, and you think, oh, this is what I should do. When it's what's really interesting is the truly wealthy people, you know, and we, you know, whether it's the uh, you know, like the the political families like the Kennedys or the Bushes or things like that. They do things very differently than the talking financial entertainers speak of. And right. obviously not everyone has their their ability to do things, but it, it really is amazing. And what I've seen is when you get someone who's really financially successful, people automatically they're, assume they're smart with money. And in my experience, that's not always the case. They're just really good at making it rain and whatever their whatever right. their thing is. They're not so good at allocating on the back end. Yep. Big difference between making it and keeping it. Yeah, it's two different skill sets. Two yeah. different skill sets. So what would you say, you know, if someone was coming to, to the Prosperity Fingers, they, they list this podcast, like, gosh, that Kim Butler is amazing. I want to go to Prosperity Fingers. What would you say the most important thing for someone who's relatively young, mid to late 20s, or, or any age, what, what's the most important thing, important thing for them to learn or, or to, to challenge their mindset on? Because I think a lot of it is a, it's more challenging mindsets. Well said. So the term thinkers is employed to get us to turn our brains on and open up that door and have the mindset of the beginner's mind, while at the same time having a growth-oriented mindset. You know, Carol Dweck's book about- Phenomenal fixed, book. Phenomenal yeah, yeah. Book. Fixed versus growth. And what's so cool about it is you can shift- So if you find yourself, and good heavens, we all have aspects of our mind that are fixed. If you find yourself in that space, you can be aware of that and open up that door to be more growth oriented. The other thing that I always ask everybody, and it's interesting that you chose the age that you did, because actually that next generation is some of my favorite clients. The most important thing is that they realize that they must be saving and save as a verb, you know, put a part of your money away every single month. That's super critical. I always ask them how they learn best because we've created a lot of content, as you're well aware, that enables them to learn via video, via audio, you know, from a podcast standpoint or an audio book or by reading books, because I do have lots of books on Amazon, as you mentioned. And so I want a self-learner or a self-taught person or you know the, the person that's going to educate some. That helps me also because then I can spend less time educating one-on-one and more time educating one-to-many. Um, frankly, if somebody's listening to this podcast that you and I are on, I would send them back to you. People that are on this podcast should not come to Kim Butler or Prosperity Thinkers. They, they, should, should, buy Kim Butler. they should buy Kim Butler's books. Now that they can do. Yes. Thank you. Well, you know, you said something that's really important there. So you talked about saving money. 
Now, I, I realize your friend, uh, Robert Kiyosaki, and yes, Kim Butler is a friend of Robert Kiyosaki's, uh, hates the word saver it, because of uh, the gold standard issue, but that we're, we're, we're not trying to argue that. We're talking about money that isn't gone to lifestyle. Right. And our industry is really bad on focusing on rate of return because rate of return is sexy. Uh, it sounds good, but we can't control it. The only thing we can control is our rate of savings. And uh, we can calculate using, there's lots of different softwares out there, but there's a really good one called Truth Concepts. Uh, we can calculate how, improve how the rate of savings is actually more important than the rate of return. Now, Correct. we're not advocating putting money in our backyard, burying money in our backyard, but we have to be a saver to deploy capital to, for, to, to different investments. And what I see is a lot of people really struggle managing cash flow. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's what we call lifestyle creep. Parkinson's law says expenses rise to meet income. And very, and then there's just a little bit of entitlement just because we live in America and we all have it, you and I too. Um, I, I need my $7 coffee at Starbucks or as my <laughs> wife, my wife have with her venti flat white with oat milk, which is literally a $6 coffee. But um, so, you know, you're living in the first world when you're buying $6 coffees, but, but it's important. It doesn't matter if you spend that as long as you're saving enough money. And I, I've seen people say you should be saving 10 or 15%. And to me, it's like 20% is the bare minimum. It should be yep. more. And, and you can look at the math uh, and it should probably should be even higher. Can you talk a little bit about savings of what you do to help clients escape the culture of spend, 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 spend? Yes. So the first thing is to stop budgeting. It doesn't work. Yes. <laughs> the second thing is to automate your savings. So whether that's an auto debit out of your checking account into your savings account, maybe it's an auto debit out of your checking account into a life insurance policy. A lot of people don't realize that a premium builds cash value with whole life. So that's a valuable savings mechanism, whether it's a auto debit out of your actual check at work, that's fine, but let's not be having it go to a retirement plan because that is not liquid savings. And this is what you and I are talking about right now is liquid savings that are available to us to use. I use the CLUE acronym, C-L-U-E, control the money, have the money liquid, use it for whatever you want, have it act like equity so that you can borrow against it. Wherever you're storing that cash, the ability to add to that cash on a consistent basis is paramount. So one, no budgeting. Two, automation. Three, I'm going to add in an interesting element here that I've really just landed upon in the last year or so, and it's the scientific proof that how you are thinking about your money when you're doing the work matters. And so I'm going to just to be super clear in my instructions, I'm going to go to the most blunt language that I can use. I like blunt. Yep. Yep. We all do. It's clearer, right? We can get at the heart of the matter quicker. And that is you want to love the act of savings Every month when you sit down at the computer to manage your online banking or however you do your finances, it can be envelopes and cash. It can be automation to the nth degree on the computer and the web or anywhere in between. 
love that activity. Be very grateful for every check that you write to pay bills or, you know, when I say check, whatever, push the buttons to make it happen automatically. Be extra grateful for the dollars that you get to save, the premiums you get to write, the functions that money is providing for you. And if you really want to take it to the next level, don't just be grateful for the physical thing, like that coffee that you're talking about, but up-level it and be grateful for what it does for you, the spiritual element, if you will, or the inspirational element of it. And so this is what, if we save first and we don't try to budget, then we can spend the rest. And this is what enables the spend the rest part to impact our lives more fully when we can be grateful for the thing it gets us, but also what it does in our lives. And then last thing, if we can tie each of the dollars that we're working with to our own values. So maybe for your wife, the value of that coffee is that it gives her confidence in her day and it lets her be a better mother or a better person at her job or whatever it is. Then you're really running that thing full circle and you will get better results. You know, what's fascinating is what you said was so deep, but yet so simple and so powerful and it works. But wouldn't it just make more sense for us to have a 150 page report and talk about sharp ratios of mutual funds? Oh, kill me now, please. What is the beta on the stock or my 401k? And it's it's one of those things. It just, we, we overcomplicate it so much, whether it's to make us look better, whether it's to charge more money, whatever it is, but it really is simple. It really is simple. I mean, it doesn't, it's not that hard, but you know, I, I don't know. It, it, it frustrates me. It, it befuddles me. It's just like, ah. So yep. we'll have a couple minutes left here. So let me ask you a couple of questions that I ask everybody. First off, what does the phrase financial health mean to you? Financial health, H-E-A-L-T-H. Yes. Liquidity, control, the ability. So I should have said it the other way around. <laughs> that clue acronym again, right? Right. Control. Yeah, there you go. Use my own marketing. Um, control of money. Financial health means that I have some control over my money and I have some liquidity so that I can use it for whatever I want. And financial health also means that I am tying, as I said just a couple sentences. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.